Welcome to the Filling the Pal podcast. I'm Greg Ashman, and my very special guest for this episode is Paul Kirshner, Professor Emeritus of Educational Psychology at the Open University of the Netherlands and guest professor at the Thomas More University of Applied Sciences in Belgium. Welcome, Paul. Now, uh, thank you very much, Greg. It's an uh, honor to be uh, on your podcast. Well, the honor is all mine. The honor is all mine. Um, thank you well, for agreeing. Let's not fight about that. Let's not fight about that. <laughs> no, we won't. Let, uh, but thank you for agreeing to come on. Um, now, if people have found their way to this podcast, then they might know a little bit about me. And if they know a little bit about me, they're bound to know about you because I reference uh, one of the papers that you co-authored pretty much all the time in almost every blog post I write. Uh, we will talk about that at some length. Um, they, the, so, so people will know you as a key researcher in the field of educational psychology because of that, but they might not know much else. So how did you actually get into this business? How did you end up a, a researcher into educational psychology? Okay, that's a long story. I'll try to keep it short. Um, uh, it was born out of pure uh, frustration. Um, I uh, was born in the United States and I did my elementary and junior high school and high school and my university there. Um, at the university, which was the State University of New York at uh, Stony Brook, which I entered as an engineering major, but uh, changed to a psychology major, um, I had a double major at a certain point, psychology and teaching, because I had done all of these science courses um, uh, biology, physics, chemistry, mathematics, and I figured it was a waste um, to just throw them away. So I graduated the university with a teaching license in uh, general science, biology, and mathematics, and a bachelorate in psychology. And um, I did what was normal at that moment, and I started teaching first is substitute teacher at a middle school uh, in the neighborhood of the university, Middle Island Middle School. And within a, a month or two, I realized that teaching wasn't for me. And yeah, and the reason was very, very simple. I myself in the areas that I taught was always a very good student. In the American system of uh, the best score you could get was 100. Um, I was usually someone who got a, anywhere between a 90 and 95 and a 100. Um, I was always done first in mathematics and things like that. And I never really had a problem with any of the natural sciences or mathematics. So you could say what I had was the curse of expertise. And I had all of these children, very normal children, not exceptionally bright, not exceptionally dumb. Um, but out of a class of 25, 30, there were always, for, you know, the first time you explained something, there were always 10 children that couldn't quite grasp what I was talking about. And after trying to explain it six or seven times in six or seven different ways, um, they still couldn't understand it. In any event, a number of them. I still had these children who were lagging or who had a problem understanding or uh, grasping what I was talking about and grasping the concept. And that frustrated me enormously. And at that point in time, I realized that teaching just maybe wasn't for me. Um, at that same 
point in time, I realized that I didn't know what I then wanted to do with the rest of my life. So I left the United States. I knew some people living in Amsterdam, working at a meditation center in, uh, in Amsterdam, uh, in the kitchen of a macrobiotic restaurant. And I decided, well, I'm going to leave for a year and get my head together. You have to realize this was 1973. Yeah. I'm now bald, yeah. but I had hair down to my shoulders, past my shoulders. I had an earring in, which I now still do. Um, I had colored my hair red with red henna. And, and you were um, at the meditation center. I was at the meditation center. And I started working as a, um, a carpenter and then as a cook. And the idea was to spend a year away, get my head together, go to Amsterdam, uh, travel around Europe, uh, go to India. That's what you did as a hippie in 1973. And at the end of that year, I had an open return, go back to the United States with a better idea of what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. To find yourself. Even, yeah. yeah, it's called in that time, get your head together. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, within that year, a lot of things happened. Uh, one of those things was I met a, a woman who uh, eventually became my wife and the mother of my four children. Um, we went to India uh, uh, after a year. In any event, that year took longer than a year. Um, I'm, I, I always say that my life is determined by serendipity. Use your head, but follow your heart. And um, things came across my way. You know, maybe my, my original idea was spend a year and go back. But something happened. I met a woman and I decided to stay longer. And uh, I stayed longer and we set out a plan to go to India. And we were preparing actually to go to New Zealand, where I had a letter from Her Majesty's uh, service to uh, become a teacher somewhere in the backwoods of New Zealand. But my wife got cold feet and she said, I don't want to leave the Netherlands. Uh, I'm going to change my major from philosophy to education. Why don't you see if you can go back to the university? So the day before we left for India, I sent a letter to the University of Amsterdam and I came back nine months later and there was a letter waiting for me at her parents' house saying, why don't you come and speak to the study coordinator about starting your master's in Amsterdam. We'll talk about what you did. So I went to talk to this guy, um, uh, Henk Tahar was his name. And um, all of my, the things that I did at, in, in the United States were transferable. I needed to do one course in factor analysis, because I didn't do that at uh, the university. And um, I could spend the first half year, September to January, uh, doing that course and taking one course with my new professor. And um, the only thing they had in the neighborhood of what I was interested in was developmental psychology. So I did developmental psychology, the whole bit, Piaget, uh, philosophy, uh, Rousseau, all of that. I won't say clap track, but uh, in any event, um, uh, and I really liked uh, Piaget, uh, I must say. His ideas of assimilation and accommodation were really, really interesting to me. And as a hippie, oh, a hippie, a hippie, at, the t as a hippie at the time, you'd have probably been quite impressed by Rousseau, wouldn't you? 
definitely, definitely. But um, uh, I, it, it just wasn't what I wanted and then serendipity um, to uh, uh, professors of developmental psychology and two professors of um, uh, statistics and methodology got together and formed the faculty of educational sciences, educational psychology. So after half of a year of that, I went over to that uh, area, completely different building. And all of a sudden this one man, Christian Hamaker, of which I, I uh, worked with him on a very great piece on review of educational research on adjunct questions, got me onto the subject of what we called text characteristics and learning processes. What can you do with uh, texts to make them more studyable, understandable, learnable? And there were things like adjunct questions, that was Ernst Rothkopf, but that was elaboration theory of Charlie Rigolith. That was uh, advanced organizers from uh, Archibald. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 all of those, but even into using different types of letters that um, uh, letters with serifs, like uh, Times New Roman, yeah. were better for children with learning disabilities, reading disabilities, than um, sans serif, like Ariel and things like that, because yeah. they gave you more recognition points, or how do you use uh, illustrations in texts? And you could say that was the beginning of um, uh, contiguity theory, you know, but it wasn't even called that at that point, uh, spatial contiguity, but all of those types of things. And uh, I got a degree in uh, uh, master's in educational psychology. My master's thesis was on the use of adjunct questions in videotaped learning materials. And as they say, the rest is history. Um, I started working for a uh, educational uh, publisher. I thought, well, my specialty is text characteristics and learning processes. Let's make quality their selling point. But within two years of working there, I found out that um, their uh, in, instead of making, sorry, let's make quality their selling point. And uh, uh, I got an idea after two years that uh, advertisements and selling points were their quality and they really weren't interested in making good school books. Huh. And hmm. what crossed my path at that moment, strangely enough, a university, uh, the open university, which used um, written materials at that time, we're talking about 1983. Um, I had done, I used my first computer in 1981, 82, an Apple IIe computer and wrote the first Dutch learning material for using the Apple computer in education. Actually, that was a first. And um, I thought, oh, text characteristics and learning processes, written learning materials, uh, it was a marriage made in heaven. I went there and the rest is history. I made 50 courses in the natural and the uh, technical sciences because I was the only educational psychologist that knew something about maths and sciences. The rest were allergic to it. Um, started doing research there. We'll get into that in a couple of minutes yeah. when we talk about um, the epistemology paper because that grew out of that research. 
one thing came from another. Uh, I became an, uh, from an assistant to an associate professor. I became a full professor at different universities and ended up in getting my emeritus status uh, about two years ago. Hmm. I have All to born out of frustration. <laughs> I, have I, to... I wasn't taught in the teaching courses at the university in the United States. I wasn't, I was taught what you should do. I was given tricks as to what you do in the classroom, but nobody had ever taken the time or the effort to explain to me the theory behind it, why you do things, why you don't do things, how things, those tricks work, when they do, when they don't work, all of those things. So I was an ape with a bag of tricks that was sent to schools to make use of that bag of tricks. I was kind of like the carpenter that didn't know anything about the different types of wood that uh, she or he was supposed to use. Or I, I was the, the, the cook that was taught three or four different pieces of, uh, 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 of apparatus, but didn't learn the theory behind teaching and how different types of meats or vegetables react to different tools and techniques that you can use. So I was a snack bar owner instead yeah. of a star cook. Not, not a lot has changed. I mean, I, I don't think most of the people I talk to wouldn't say that they were particularly well prepared when they went to the classroom. One of the things you were, so you went to India in 73. You've just reminded my uncle, um, sadly now passed away, my uncle Al. Uh, he, was a, he was a traveler and he went to India in the 70s. And one of the things he said to me, um, when I was sort of coming, coming of age, when I was about 16 and 17, said, if you go traveling, this is, by the way, this is nothing to do with learning, but you've just reminded me. If, if you go traveling, you've got to read this book. And I said, what's the book? And he didn't have a copy, but he told me the title. So I read this book. It must have been about uh, 94 when I read this book, Bad Blood. And, and the art of motorcycle maintenance. No, no, no. It was, it's called Bad Blood. And, um, okay. and the guy, and the book is about a guy called Charles Sabrage who is a serial killer of uh, Western tourists who visit um, India and Bangkok and he drugs them and steals their passports and they die. And my uncle wanted me to read this book. So if, if, I, if I ever went, went traveling, I could avoid that fate. Well, I've just, they've, they've just put a, a drama on the BBC, I think it is in England, about that, a dramatization of his life called The Serpent. Yeah, Charles Sabrosha. Yeah, the serpent. He's in jail now in Kathmandu. Anyway, oh. um, that was a bit of a digression. Sorry. Um, so, a key moment in my career, uh, Paul, um, was discovering through a reference in John Hattie's Visible Learning. So we have to give him some credit here. Your paper with John Sweller and Richard Clark on why minimal, minimal guidance during instruction does not work. Um, We'll examine that paper in more detail shortly because um, there's quite a bit to say about that. But as a result of reading that, I found uh, I found your writing on epistemology versus pedagogy, which you've just sort of flagged. Um, I think this is a critical distinction, and I don't think enough people know about this. But particularly, it's really affected the way that I think about science teaching, maths teaching. I think if historian history teachers got their head around this distinction, it would affect how they think about history teaching. So, can you give us a potted summary of the distinction between the two and why it's important. Okay. First, you need to know a little bit of the, uh, the history behind it. Okay. Yes. I'll try to keep it short. Um, as I said, I was, um, uh, I lived the first 21 years of my life in the United States. 
I went to a, a very special high school called Maths and Science, called the Bronx High School of Science. Uh, science at that point in time, it was the best high school in the United States. 10,000 people took the test to get in, in uh, New York City, and uh, only 900 uh, got in uh, to, to that. And they had all of the normal 1960s textbooks, which was from the PSSC, the Physical Science uh, Curriculum Study, uh, BSES, Biological Sciences Curriculum Study, and Chem Studies. And those were all uh, based upon this holistic idea of science, okay? So um, they were, my, my high school got its computer and got its new building um, because the Russians launched the Sputnik. And um, we needed in the United States more scientists and more engineers. So it moved from a very old building to a very new building. I didn't take shop courses, woodworking courses. I took science techniques laboratory in which I built transistor testers. You know, that was the type of school it was and yep. still is, okay? okay? That's my background. I was working at the Open University and eight or nine years and I was constantly making use of all that I had learned uh, uh, about text characteristics and learning processes. And I kind of dried up and I figured I need, needed to do research. But we didn't even have a research charge at the Open University. So I was the first person who ever did research at the Open University as a uh, staff member there. I had Gosh. to break a lot of, do a lot of ceilings to be allowed to do that. And I did research. Uh, I had two topics and I finally chose the second one, which was um, the use of practicals in higher science education. And the reason for that was because we had all of these practicals for biology and science uh, uh, and chemistry and physics, but we were a distance teaching university. And we didn't have the, the background of the British Open University where you spent two weeks in the summer going to a summer school. You had to go one weekend a month for a number of months somewhere to a laboratory somewhere in the Netherlands to do that. And I thought, this isn't what we should be doing. We shouldn't be teaching them how to clean glassware because you couldn't get a degree in biology or chemistry from the Open University of the Netherlands. Um, you got a degree in the sciences. So the idea was to train you to become a scientist and not to become a biology, biologist or a physicist or a chemist or a geologist or something like that. So I figured this is the wrong type of practical or laboratory, whatever you want to call it, that we should be doing. So I started doing research on practicals in higher science education. And I came into contact with things like Derek Hodgson, people like Derek Hodgson and uh, uh, Clara Nigam or Nigam or however you, you do it. And I was reading it and I figured, no, we have to make a practical, which we'll call a first level practicum in teaching people how to become a scientist, how to think about science, how to think about using practicals in science. So we needed that. Okay, that was four years of research. But while doing that research, I came across the idea of, no, we're doing it wrong. We're teaching people who are not scientists to become scientists using epistemology of the scientist. And what is the epistemology of a scientist? That is doing research to gain new knowledge. Research is a tool for a scientist to gain new knowledge. 
he or she is an expert in a field. There aren't very many books that can bring that person further. So how do you come across new knowledge? You do research to gain new knowledge, but you're doing science there. But if you're at university, you're learning science and learning science is, science is completely different from doing science. And I kind of got this epiphany moment yeah, I, yeah, you could say, while I was writing my thesis, that we were doing it wrong. All of what I had learned as being an American originally, I'm now a Dutch person, of uh, all of these uh, uh, courses in high school and university based upon learning sciences as doing science, yeah, I realized, hey, that's wrong. We're dealing with something different. So I started reading things like from Mickey Chi uh, 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 about uh, problems and problem solving and how expertise I started. Uh, the categorizing the physics problems, depending on that one. Depending on your level of expertise. Yeah. yeah. Do it. yeah. yeah? I started reading these things and the epiphany moment came somewhere in those years, Mickey Chi, um, Clara Negam, uh, uh, Derek Hodgson, of we're doing it all wrong. Um, we don't start teaching a person something as if they are an expert in it. We have to teach them as if they're novices and it's completely different. And so while writing my thesis, I needed a chapter which made it understandable why this first and second level laboratory or practical at the Ovid University of the Netherlands had to be different from your traditional practical at a university. Yeah? And that was chapter two or chapter three in my uh, thesis, which eventually became an article on the one hand and a book chapter on the other hand of why epistemology is neat the proper pedagogy for training a novice in an area, and it doesn't matter what area it is. It could be chess, it could be history, it could be uh, English literature. That's not the way to teach someone by trying to do it the way, based upon the way an expert works in her or his field. Yeah, you see, us maths teacher, I'm a maths teacher, I also teach some science, but I'm a maths teacher, and we have to suffer from these uh, maths professors, professors of maths, who will go on and they'll do a TED talk or they'll write an article or something and they'll say, oh, school maths is all wrong. Uh, real mathematicians, they come up with hypotheses and conjectures and they test them and they do blah, blah, blah. And in, and in the elementary school, they're not doing that. They're, they're doing this rote learning. And, and it, they always say it as if they're the first person that's ever thought of this. Um, and they always say it in this condescending way like us, teachers we've all got it wrong but we seem to have to put up with them like i wish we could have this idea your idea of drawing a clear distinction between epistemology the way we find new knowledge at the cutting edge of a subject and pedagogy how we teach novices the fundamentals of that subject those two things are different and if if more people understood that we wouldn't have to put up with so much nonsense yes. first thing is her, is her first name joe um uh, uh, that you're talking about Oh, um, I wasn't thinking of, no, I, yeah, um, 
Joe Bowler does advocate a very experiential style of maths teaching, but I was thinking more of, um, oh, there's quite a few of them. There's quite actual well, maths professionals. I, I wrote, I wrote a, um, a, a blog, yeah. um, which um, is called, I think it's called uh, The Butterfly That Forgot It Was Once a Caterpillar. Yeah. Okay. And all of these, it's, it's kind of about the curse of expertise. It's all of these um, so-called experts who I call eduquacks. Yeah. And those are the Sugata Mitras of the world, uh, the Ken uh, Robinsons of the world, the Joe Bowlers of the world, um, who have gained a certain level. Uh, let's take Sugata Mitra, because he's a perfect example of it. So it very classical, traditional training. He got his PhD in solid state physics. And then it's like, but I'm so smart, not thanks to all of this basic training that I got, but in spite of, he's a butterfly that's forgotten that he was once a caterpillar. That's and a good all analogy. Of these experts are kind of like that. And it, it's all of like, yeah, uh, I'm really intelligent and creative and have these incredible ideas that I think, yeah, but maybe you're so creative and have all of the ideas because of the fact that you had this very traditional foundational um, uh, educational career, which gave you enough knowledge that you could think about the rest of the world think about maths or physics in this way. The problem is then they think they also know something about education. And that's what I call the expertise uh, generalization syndrome. Yeah. Uh, you're an expert in A and you think what you say about B, C and D are, are really important. Now we have the virologists yeah, who uh, uh, are journalists or whatever, dancing teachers. Yeah, who now think they it's 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 a combination of of butterflies who forgot they were caterpillars on the one hand, and people with the expertise generalization syndrome. I think the most striking example of that is Linus Pauling. Do you know about Linus yeah. Pauling? Yes. yes. So he, yeah. So he was what was it? He was he was it protein folding or something he he was an expert in i can't i don't know exactly but then he decided later on that vitamin c was the cure for cold everything. and everything and, every, and be, but because he was an expert in field a he had certain amount of credibility when he made these claims about field b even though he wasn't an expert in that area and you see that all the time and this is why people who who uh, it's a big problem for people who suggest there's a general ability of critical thinking because uh, we can think very critically about stuff that we know a lot about in a field in which we're an expert, but when we're not, we can't assume that transfers. I normally ask that person then to think critically uh, uh, about uh, Schrodinger's uh, paradox, and uh, they look at me and they say, "You know, Schrodinger, that guy with you know, the cat and 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 you know Heisenberg or, or Heisenberg's uncertainty principle." You know, like. Uh, uh, please explain to me critically why uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle actually works in the uh, uh, subatomic uh, atomic uh, uh, realm of, uh, 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 of quantum uh, quantum physics. And they look at me 
And I say, but you're a critical thinker. Yeah. You should be able to do this really easily. And you know all the steps in critical thinking. Yeah, and just I look say, at it Look at it from someone else's perspective. Perspective, yeah. Uh, you know, do that. Uh, you know, and they look at me. I said, apparently you need some knowledge of classical Newtonian physics and, 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 and quantum physics in order to even think about it, let alone critically think about it, let alone come up with a creative solution for uh, the uh, uh, movement of uh, in a one electron space. And I do that and he said, oh yeah, but that's, uh, okay, another one. Um, uh, here, uh, this is um, Spassky's 37th set when he was uh, working you know, uh, 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 in, in his party against this other chess master. Please tell me what he should do next. And they look at me again as if they're seeing water that's on fire. They said, but you're a critical thinker. I mean, critically come up with a creative solution to this. Or uh, oh, go find two or three of your colleagues and collaboratively yeah. work with them to solve this problem. I'll give you five minutes. Yeah. I mean, uh, Spassky did it in about 15 seconds. So I'll give you five minutes. That's 20 times as much time. You should be able to do this. What does it mean to collapse a wave function? Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and you know, it's it's I, I try when I when I do this and I give lectures to people and they come up with these types of things, to on the one hand explain to them that a procedure is different from a skill. Um, uh, I've published um, uh, about 400 scientific articles at this moment. I consider myself fairly good in doing educational psychological research. Okay, that's simple. If you ask me to do something in social psychology or sociology, I know the steps, but I can't even define the problem in a sociological way because I don't know the sociological theories that determine human behavior. So I can't even define the problem, let alone come up with a methodology and data analysis and, and, and interpret my results in it. And that's a field very close to my own. So that's on the one hand, I do it like that. And on the other hand, I try to make it as simple as possible in, in, in kind of like, are you a, a, a chess master or a quantum physicist or are you even a, a, a cook? And I say to them, well, you've got this cooking situation in which the altitude is this and this. How much time do you need to let your bread rise? Yeah. You don't know how yeast works at a higher altitude and what the difference in air pressure is. And the I know you can't make a decent cup of tea up a mountain. I know that. No, you can't. My sister lives at 3,000 meters. And if you want to cook spaghetti, you need a pressure cooker. Yeah. Because water boils at 90 degrees and the... Spaghetti just doesn't get cooked. Yes, quite. Well, yes. But that wouldn't, your sister obviously isn't in Holland if she lives at 3,000 no, meters. No, no. She lives in, uh, in Colorado. Ah, yes. Well, that would explain it. If you're enjoying this episode of the Filling the Pale podcast, then please share a link on social media. If you haven't done so already, please visit my blog at fillingthepale.substack.com on the archives at gregashman.wordpress.com. Again, if you find something you like, please share a link. You can find me on Twitter via at Greg underscore Ashman. Now, we've got to get to uh, that paper. Okay. Um, 
So, well, I mean, minimal guidance during instruction doesn't work. An analysis of the failure of, and then I always lose the plot here, constructivist, yeah. inquiry-based learning, yeah, everything, all that. Now, um, I've heard this story. I think I've heard it from John, I think, and I think I've heard it from you once in Amsterdam. So for the benefit of everyone, everyone else, could you uh, explain to me how that paper came to be? Okay. I don't know if John's view is the same as mine. I know it's different from Dick Clark's uh, uh, view of it. Um, John and I were at a conference and there was a plenary session. I don't remember if it was early or AERA or, um, but one of those conferences. And at the front, you had all of, it was a session in which all of these constructivists were talking about uh, learning and you know the, 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 the Tom Duffy view of learning and the world. By the way, I love Tom Duffy. He's a great friend of mine. I've gone drinking beer on his boat in a lake uh, uh, in Illinois. Um, he's visited me in the Netherlands. We've gone to the Christmas market in Aachen. So nothing negative about Tom, except his ideas about learning are different from mine. Let's I reckon it's absolutely fine to drink beer with someone on a lake and dis also disagree with them fundamentally about and learning. I think that's absolutely fine. Yeah. Well, we were at, and yeah, the, the Thomas Duffy's in the front. And um, at a certain point, either John or I asked a question and got this, you're like, but is, is that the most effective or efficient way to learn? Shouldn't people have a basic knowledge? And they no, the discovery and inquiry and this type of thing. And um, afterwards, John and I started talking to each other. I, I had met him earlier through uh, Jeroen from Merienburg. Um, and I had discussed with him uh, uh, extraneous and intrinsic and, and germane load. And I had from the beginning had a problem with germane load with him. And we discussed that for hours in, uh, in, in the Netherlands. Uh, really good. He's a great guy. I love John and Susan. They've had dinner at my house. He's one of my favorite people in the world, if not my favorite person in, in the whole world. So you're, you're, you're blessed to have him as your PhD supervisor. I am. I am. Um, we were talking about it, and, and, and we were on the same wavelength. We thought, let's write a paper, yeah? Because we just can't let this happen, yeah? So we started writing a paper. Strangely enough, the first title of it was completely different. My title of it was inquiry learning is it as in is it learning yes okay john being john thought that's much too cryptical we need a completely different title because people have to know exactly what we're talking about and it became the title that it was so we were busy working on it and going back and forth in the typical john and paul way Paul writes something, he sends it to John. John says immediately, I'm really busy at the moment. I don't know when I'll have time to do it. And two hours later, you get it back with his comments and his additions to the paper. And he sends it to me and I say, yeah, John, I really wasn't prepared for this at the moment. I have this and this to do. So I'll try to get it back to you within the next three or four days. And two hours later, it was back yeah, to him. Yeah, yeah. Went back and forth like that. And in, in doing that, we were talking, he said, we need a critical reader. Of this yeah and john suggested dick clark which said dick he's he's what we call in dutch he's a, a, a 
bookcase that's fallen over. Yeah, he's got all of this information. You just have to ask this, and he can cite this, that, and the other. And this is his area. And I was a fan of Dick Clark. Anyhow, I had, I knew him uh, since his 1983 article, the HI uh, study um, stuff about mathematic. Yeah, uh, uh, of his um, first on um, uh, let's call it the uh, uh, his his grocery truck article in 83 uh, on media in, in, in learning and then his 89 work on mathematics. And because I had come from early Rothkopf and had your questions about the energetic, that also fit immediately. Yeah. So um, I went to, 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 to Dick after he gave a session. I said, Dick, um, John and I are writing this uh, paper. Would you be a critical reader of this? And he said, oh yeah, no problem, great. So we sent him the article and he came back with an email. I probably have it somewhere. And it's, it's, yeah, Paul, John, I'm almost afraid to ask, but this is such a beautiful paper. Um, could I be third author of this? And we said, yes. And the rest is history. Um, he was in California. I was in Amsterdam. John was in Australia, yeah, in, in Sydney, actually just outside of Sydney. And um, uh, uh, we sent it in, and it got two great reviews that we thought, here, we can do something with it. Yep. And it got a third yep. review. I, I always say that might be the Diana, Diana Kuhn review. She might have been one of the reviewers. I don't know. But it was the kind of thing like John and I looked at each other electronically and said, no way. Yeah. No way. So we got in touch with educational psychologists. Uh, and uh, with Lynn, and then with, uh, yeah, uh, with Lynn, and um, said, okay, we can deal with the first two, but the third, no way. Yeah. If we have to do that, it's another thing. We're going to another journal. It's just that simple. And uh, she said, no problem. Just deal with it. Deal with it well. Um, I know the third person's thoughts, and I know that it's impossible to please that person. Yeah. So we we wrote it in a way uh, that Gail Sinatra was completely amazed by, because I would take the first thing, and I write it, and I send it uh, uh, to John. That would be eight or nine hours later in Australia. He'd write something and do it. He'd send it back. That was a nice time for uh, Dick in uh, uh, California, who would work on it and send it to, to me. And with it, we had six iterations within 48 hours. Wow. Dale Sinatra said, I have never seen anything like this in my whole life. And we sent it back like within two days. And it got accepted. The rest of its history. Well, it is a. It, I'm not surprised that the, the the there was a bit of magic about the way that it was written because it is a really important paper. Uh, let's deal with some of the um, objections. So you get you get it published in 2006, and then 2007, I think you get three rebuttals published yeah. in Educational mm -hmm. Psychologist. Um, and my I would characterize them this way. So I would say two of them say that the the uh, 
things like problem-based learning are not actually minimally guided. They've got lots of guidance. So you're wrong to call problem-based learning minimally guided. We give students lots of guidance and scaffolds and stuff like that. So that's the problem with the paper. Then the third one uh, by Diana Kuhn basically says, um, it's, it's more philosophical. It's like, well, uh, but what are we teaching? So you might direct instruction might be good for teaching some things, but then if we want, um, what, what have I got here? I've written something down. Um, it's not good for developing the skills that we need for the future or, 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 or something like that. And then you responded to that. So would you take us through a little bit of the thinking around that and, and the response to those criticisms? Um, well, uh, it was very simple. We showed, as we're showing in the paper right now, that I'm writing with John uh, and uh, two other authors, um, that you can say it's not so minimally guided, but if you look at, in America, um, uh, the, the, the science curricula and the science standards and the, the, the handbooks of it, um, it is. It's just that simple. And all research that looks at it from a different way is kind of disregarded. So two of them, we could say, okay, maybe your specific way of thinking about it is different. I mean, if you take the... Uh, uh, let's say the Maastricht view with its seven-step procedure, you could say, which is kind of a little bit like McMaster in it, you can say, okay, there is a certain amount of instruction in it, but if you want to do it really well, you should do it in a different order. If you, if you say it's not minimally guided, you could do it in a different way. Now, and the third is, that's why I say, I think that the third, the reason why Diana Kuhn um, wrote that was because she was possibly one of the three reviewers and knew beforehand exactly what would be in it. I'm not accusing her of anything, but also the comments that we received for that article when it was being developed were kind of like the article that the rebuttal that Diana Kuhn gave. And there was no way to answer that. It's it's yeah i'm sorry i can argue with you how many angels you can fit on the head of a pin but i'm just not going to win yeah you know? it's kind of like how do you disregard it in the most gentlemanly way yeah i think on, on that on that. yeah on that point of minimal guidance yeah um surely in my head like there is a philosophical difference between uh, thinking what uh, what it is that you want students to be able to achieve, then um, taking something away for them to discover or work out for themselves. So that's what uh, inquiry-based learning or problem-based learning does to a greater or lesser extent. Pure discovery learning, you take everything away. Uh, but if it's a highly scaffolded one, there are bits you take away from them to discover. And then direct instruction, which the more I've learned about it, I mean, when I first started teaching, I I couldn't get problem-based learning to work. So I used a form of direct instruction, but it wasn't the research-based optimal form because I didn't know about it. And the more I've learned about that reading, say, Rosenshine's principles, yeah. et cetera, which you summarize uh, very well in your book with Carl Hendrick, which we'll come on to later. Um, the more that I look at that, the more um, I realize that good direct instruction is about adding things in. 
So rather than just explaining something, you explain something and, and, and you get a response and you res respond to that response and you add something in and you add a bit more in. So there's a pivot point in my head. You're either taking something away or you're adding something in. And I don't think you can reconcile those two positions. No, you can't do that. I mean, it's kind of like in, in uh, our Merriam words and my book, uh, 10 Steps to Complex Learning, we say, kind of like based upon Charlie Rigolet's elaboration theory, we say you begin with the simplest whole task and you give quite a lot of support and guidance, even with that simplest of whole task. So you're actually doing guided learning in that, but in the context of a task. So you give uh, information prior to the, uh, the, the that simplest of all tasks that you can think of and uh, while carrying it out, you're giving uh, just-in-time information, see it as step-by-step uh, uh, -step, uh, worked examples in which you slowly but surely in that level of task, take things away until someone at the end can do it. And as soon as you say, okay, um, if someone can do it, carry it out in that way, then you go to a slightly more difficult task this pure elaboration theory from, from Charlie Rangler, yeah? you add one small thing to it and you give the support and guidance needed for that one small, small element and constantly add to it and add to it and add to it. And as soon as you add something to it, someone has mastered the previous step. When you add something to it, you again make use of direct instruction in that. And if you look at the 10 steps of Barrack Rosenshine. I don't want to call it that because it shouldn't be carried out as 10 steps, Yeah, the 10 aspects of it. Uh, discovery is a part of it. I think it's his seventh or eighth point in that, but that's after you've first checked for prior knowledge, then you've made small steps, then you've uh, uh, modeled the behavior, uh, then you've checked for understanding, then you've done it in a very given people the chance to do something in a very guided way. Think of, of work examples, partially worked examples, uh, goal-free examples, uh, 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 tasks and things like that. Uh, a check for mastery and you've reached all of those things. And then you say, okay, now make use of all that knowledge in a completely open environment in which I'm only gonna be standing there to help you if I think you're going to fail or if you need help. And that's direct instruction, or as yeah. John and I called it from the beginning, explicit instruction. Yeah. yeah. Instruction shouldn't be implicit because if you don't have the knowledge in the area, you can't even see the implicitness. Yeah. yeah? That's that's the problem. If I if I'm talking to someone who knows nothing about about cooking, and I'm a fairly good cook, and I don't explain all of the things that are implicit to me in an explicit way like the difference between baking soda, baking powder and yeast with respect to having a mixture of flour and water rise. If I don't explain that to them explicitly, they won't know when and how to use them, why it didn't rise in a certain situation. And I can explain to all the listeners the difference between baking powder, baking soda and yeast, but you know, and I often do that, but that's the important thing. It's 
it's not implicit, it's explicit. And often the problem, even if there is instruction in that guided discovery or whatever, it's often implicitly there. And people who don't understand the problem itself and the area often cannot see that implicit thing. You have to make it explicit. I think one of the important things about explicit teaching as well, which you've touched on, is that it is a whole system and it involves the gradual release of um, uh, responsibility from the teacher to the student. And it, even like some an area like cognitive load theory with its guidance fading principle, um, it, it, this idea appears everywhere. But w what a lot of people think explicit teaching is, is just that moment when the teacher is explaining something to students. Strong and then that... Yeah, well, and then they'll say, well, my inquiry learning contains a lot of explicit teaching. And what they mean is every so often they'll stop and they'll explain something to the students in the context of inquiry learning. But that's not explicit teaching because explicit teaching is a sequence where you gradually release. And that bit where the teacher is standing there just hovering, just to help in case the kid falls over is as much a part of the sequence of explicit teaching as the begin bit at the start where everything is fully explained in small little steps and guided. And yeah. I mean, I often give people um, uh, an example of um, when I taught, when I first started um, walking with my, uh, at that point in time, three, four-year-old uh, granddaughter, I said, I give you two situations. I, I, because they also say explicit teaching doesn't work in young children. They have to discover it. And I said, well, I, I have this very um, busy street yeah, uh, uh, in the middle of the city. And I can choose between two things. I can either explicitly teach my granddaughter and I explain how I do that with modeling and, 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 and explaining and all of those things, kind of Barrack Rosenshine type of thing. I say, or I can say to her, there's the other side of the street. Uh, go um, uh, discover how to best get to the other side of the street by yeah. yourself. Yeah? And yeah. people look at me and say, no, you don't do that. I said, well, why am I then doing that in biology or learning to read or mathematics or whatever? Yeah. I want to have my granddaughter safely, effectively efficiently get to the other side of the street because I only have at that point one of them yeah. and I don't yeah. want to get hit by a car. Why can I do that there and you find it completely normal? But if I say we're going to do the same thing if that child is learning maths or sciences or whatever and she's my granddaughter doesn't get bored crossing the street with Opa, with Grandpa. It's just that simple. It's kind of like, like oh, I'm lost thing. I'm, I'm just going to do it my own way anyhow. No, she, she wants to get to the other side of the street. We're going to do it in this way. I don't understand why people use it the most normal thing in the world. If I go normal thing in the world for one thing, and as soon as it's about school, it's kind of like, but well, we have to do it completely different here. I think it's very telling that when it's safety critical, so if it's uh, crossing the street or learning to swim, we, we wouldn't learning dream of, yeah, learning to drive, we wouldn't dream of using inquiry learning. But for some reason, I think possibly because the effects are so delayed of education, you know, yeah, what I'm doing with you now in year four is going to affect what you can do in 20 years time. So you don't get that immediate feedback. 
And I think that's probably why we go for these less effective methods, perhaps. But what I'm doing with the child in year four today is also important for what they're doing next week. I mean, it's not True. in your life skills. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you want people to have a good foundation. Yeah. I, I don't want a lawyer who's discovered law while sitting in a penitentiary to be my, uh, my lawyer. I don't want a doctor who's only by trial and error learns how to get people better because I might be one of the errors <laughs> and that, and people will constantly say, no, I want a, 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 a lawyer. Um, uh, I, I want a doctor who's well-trained and well-educated to take care of me. I want to build a house that an engineer has studied tensile strength and how deep the foundation should be and how thick the walls and, and, and all of those types of things. Uh, I, thought, I don't want to drive across a bridge, you know, that an engineer by trial and error, this could be his, you know, third inquiry-based bridge and I'm <laughs> driving with my car. Nobody would ever think of no. that. Yeah? You, and you, you're glad that from elementary school on, they've learned how to add and subtract and multiply. And then they've learned these absurd things about tensile strength, yeah? Which really wasn't necessary for them, you know, to be able to divide a pizza into nine pieces or yeah. eight pieces. But we really want them to be able to have done that when we're living in that house that they've designed or driving across that bridge. Absolutely. Out there in, in their office you know, when I'm sick. Now, I haven't even finished all the questions I had about the uh, minimal guidance paper, and um, we're getting a bit short of time. So uh, what I'm going to have to do, hopefully, if you're willing, Paul, is I'm going to have to have you on the podcast again, because I want to know about this uh, conference uh, that the paper provoked and the, the book, which is the most extraordinary book for because of the dialogues at the end of each chapter. I can't go into all that because we're running out of time, but I do before I let you go. So if, if you can come on again, we can address all that. But before you oh, go, oh. and, and uh, um, the, other, the other things I wanted to talk about was uh, collective working memory and uh, definitions of learning. But we'll have to talk about those next time. How Learning Happens is a book you wrote with Carl Hendrick. It's a fantastic yeah. book. Uh, it's uh, essentially, it's a, for those that aren't aware, it's, it's a, a compendium of um, an analysis of the seminal papers in the field of educational psychology. Um, and you give a bit of a discussion of them, why they're important, some quotes from them. And it's a very easy read. So if you're a teacher who isn't that into uh, reading original research papers, you find that a bit hard going. If you pick up how learning happens, you can get a, a digest of all that and, and come to terms with it. So how did you, uh, what, what sparked the, uh, the idea to write that book? Now we're back to full circle. Uh, it's really full circle. Uh, frustration. Um, frustration on two fronts. The first thing is as a PhD supervisor, I would get uh, a PhD candidates, we don't call them students in the Netherlands, candidates because they work and they are paid as a researcher for four years to do research. Um, uh, I would have these PhD candidates and we'd be discussing the use of, of prompts. Yeah? And because they were going to do a piece of research on making use of computer prompts. Yeah? And I talked to them about, no, well, actually what you're doing is you're, you're, you're making use of adjunct questions, the type of prompt that you're doing uh, by uh, Ernie Rothkopf. 
and they look at me with this blank look on their face and they had never read about that. Or uh, if they were making use of animations or something like that, I'd go back to original research on uh, film strips or whatever and how you decide what type of animation you use and whether animation is necessary. So I, I, would, I, I would do this and they give me these blank stares and I realized that they hadn't received in their training uh, prior to becoming a PhD candidate, the gods, the, 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 the giants in the field of uh, educational psychology, uh, cognitive psychology. So that was one frustration. Yeah? And so I had to give them constantly papers and books and say, well, read this about information processing and read this about, okay? Uh, second is I would be giving presentations to teachers who often were doing, let's call it the right thing. Yeah, I know that's a, uh, a hard thing to say, in my opinion, we're doing the right thing. They had, we're using it at the wrong times or didn't know why they were using it or actually how it worked. And I would have to explain to them from um, um, why using an illustration while giving a presentation can be good, but also can be bad if you use it in the wrong way and all of those types of things. So I was also frustrated with the level of knowledge of the teachers and the heads of school that I was giving workshops to and lectures to. So out of these two frustrations, I thought I need a book that I would have liked to have had when I was studying to be a teacher in 1969, 1970, 1971 at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, that would have taught me the background so that I wasn't just an ape carrying it with a bag of tricks. That's a Dutch saying, okay? Nothing pejorative meant about the teachers, yeah? But that I wasn't an ape just with a bag of tricks but that I was a well-knowledgeable teacher beginning on a teaching job. Yeah. Or while I was teaching and I had these problems and got frustrated and someone said, hey, here's a book that can help you. Maybe if you read this, you'll be able to understand why what you've tried to do really doesn't work. That would have made me a reflective practitioner yeah, in terms of a gears and shirt of, of, of the showman or, or, or whatever. So I thought I needed this book. So I first toyed with it in Dutch and wrote something in Dutch called On the Shoulders of Giants in Dutch. And that was easy to use that title. But I decided it needs a broader audience because it's not only Dutch teachers, it's teachers around the world. And I had done some work with Carl and I had met him. And it's kind of like Carl, would you like to be my second author on this? I want to do this. He said, yes. And we came up with this book. We wanted to call it On the Shoulders of Giants, but Umberto Eco had just written a book called On the Shoulders of Giants. Yeah. So we thought that wasn't a very good idea to use the same thing. So it was came how learning happens and that idea of presenting to teachers, not at a pejoratively at their level, but I mean it seriously at their level, they aren't trained as researchers. 
so they can try to read an original article by Ernst Rothkopf about methanogenic behaviors or from, from, from uh, Dick Clark about methanogenic behaviors or about John Sweller on cognitive load, but they don't have the methodological knowledge to understand what was going on. Um, they don't have the theoretical knowledge to understand what they're talking about because they trained to be a teacher and not a, an educational psychologist yeah. or, 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 or cognitive psychologist. So let's put it in the, in the level and the way that a teacher at school can understand what was studied. So we do that, we explain exactly what happened in that piece of research, but then we take the next step and say, how can you use it in the school? And how can you use it in your classroom with takeaways at the end, you know, kind of like do's and don'ts. Yeah. Your working memory is limited, so don't overload it. Yeah, you know, it's a takeaway yeah. from it. And at the end, also, uh, the original literature, so that if they're more interested, they can go to the literature that we cited, but also uh, a lecture from John on cognitive load or um, a PowerPoint about it or a podcast from you or whatever so that they can uh, also uh, have additional materials and that with QR codes so that they can at the end say, oh, uh, or beforehand, they can do that if they know the QR code. First, I want to listen to John talking about cognitive load theory and then I'm going to read this chapter. You know, make it palatable and understandable, but not talking down to. That's a completely different. We're writing it so that a non-expert in the field of educational psychology or cognitive psychology can understand the educational and the cognitive psychology in it and understand what it means for her or him in her or his teaching. Yes, and I think you, you achieved that very well. Um, Thank you. Look, uh, Paul, as I say, <laughs> I'll have to invite you on again because there's still so much more to talk about, but we have run up against the buffers of time. Thank you so much uh, for, for coming on the podcast. And uh, hopefully we'll speak again. Uh, we will. It was my pleasure. And as you now know, or you do, I love to talk, especially about learning and teaching and those types of things. Uh, that's my passion. I'm just like the soccer player or the footballer who says, I was fortunate enough to make my hobby, my profession. Uh, my hobby is helping people learn better and I've been able to make it my passion into my life's work. Absolutely. And, Thank and, you. That, and that comes across. That comes across. Thank you, Paul.